truly be in the presence of, of God himself. That's really what this series is all about that we've been in. We've called the series Inviting God. And it's about, it's about a God who invites us into his presence. It's about a God who gives us an invitation not just to know about him or know of him, but actually to know him deeply and intimately, personally, in a very real way. And that's what we've been talking about for the last, for the last few weeks. Um, and we've kind of compared it. You, if you remember, if we can maybe get a shot of our painting a few weeks ago, Peggy Hunt did this painting um, for us. There it is. And, and specifically included, you can see there on the left side of the painting, this path. And that path kind of twists and turns and then all of a sudden you can't see it. And, and we've kind of compared this invitation to an invitation to a journey with him. And that journey has twists and turns and hidden corners and we don't always see where it's going to lead us. We don't always know exactly where it's going to end up. And at times there's struggle involved in, in following that path, but it's worth it because it's a path that is filled with his presence. And so that's kind of what we've been, what we've been talking about. Uh, which, by the way, I just mentioned with that painting, once it was finished, we began to ask ourselves, what, what should we do with that painting? Because Peggy has donated it to us. And it actually, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. We don't have all the details, but it actually kind of sparked the thought that we as a journey team would, in the fall, actually have an art auction, a silent auction, and the proceeds would go to the U-Count campaign, which is our effort to fight human, human trafficking, especially in Calcutta, India. And, um, and so we'll talk more about that, but I just want to plant that seed in your mind, not only with this painting, but we have a number of artists uh, in our Timberline family who uh, may create something that you would be willing to donate for the purpose of, of raising funds to fight this injustice that is in our world. Or you may just have art that's not on your walls anymore um, that, that you would be willing to donate for something like that. So you'll hear more a little bit more about that next week. But anyway, I want us to talk uh, tonight about the, the next discipline. We're actually talking about disciplines that position us to, to know God in a more uh, intimate and, and deeper way. Last week we talked about the discipline of silence in relation to this journey of knowing God. And we talked about that swirling of noise and activity and stuff in our lives. And, and, and how in the midst of all of that, all of the chaos that often is our lives, God says, be still and know that I am God. And we come to know truly that he is God in the stillness when we discipline ourselves for that stillness. Because in our culture, we, we know that, that we will not just drift towards stillness. The drift of our lives, if we're not intentional and if we're not disciplined, will be towards activity and it will be towards noise. And so we have to discipline ourselves to find those moments of stillness where we can truly know that he is God. And so the discipline of silence is closely related to the topic we're going to address tonight, and that's the discipline of solitude. Tonight I want to talk to you about solitude. Now there's been much written in many books, many different chapters, written about the subject of solitude. 
And in some respects, it's difficult to do that subject justice in the few moments we have tonight. But my prayer for tonight is that this will be a catalyst in our lives that will compel us to learn more about the discipline of solitude, but also to, to reach a point where we are actually practicing regularly this discipline of solitude. Now, if you take time to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will not be able to escape the fact that Jesus often withdrew himself from people, from the noise of the crowds. He actually withdrew himself often from ministry, from serving people in order to find a place to be alone with the Father. We see that throughout the ministry of Jesus. In fact, he inaugurated his ministry before he actually began his public ministry. He spent 40 days out in the desert fasting and praying and being alone with God. And that's where we read about where Satan came to tempt him. It was while he was in solitude with the Father. We can also uh, discover that before he chose the, those that would become the twelve that we know as, as disciples, before making those selections, we read in Luke chapter 6, you can follow along, we'll look at a few different verses tonight that describe Jesus' discipline of solitude. Luke chapter 6 verse 12 says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. So those choices came on the heels of a night that Jesus spent just him and the Father, praying to the Father. When he received news about John the Baptist, his relative and friend, that he had been beheaded by King Herod, look at Matthew chapter 14 and verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. We'll recall the story of that incredible miracle where Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and he broke them and multiplied them miraculously to feed what scripture described as 5,000 men plus women and children. So maybe some 10 to 15,000 people on the heels of that incredible experience, that incredible miracle we read in Matthew chapter 14 verse 23. It says, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, in solitude, just him and the Father. Again, we read after a long, powerful night of touching the lives of people where a whole community came to a house where he was staying and brought their sick and those who were possessed by evil spirits and Jesus ministered to them. After a long night of that, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. When his disciples returned from what amounts to a missions trip, where Jesus sent them out to, to carry this message of hope and good news, and they returned with this wonderful report, and there was a great crowd around them. The ministry went well. Momentum was building. A crusade was in the works. It's time to print the brochures and all that. When they came back, look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. 
And on and on and on we could go demonstrating Jesus' practice of solitude. In fact, Luke actually tells us, it's not on the screen, but he actually says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It was a practice in Jesus' life. He taught it and he modeled it. This need for solitude. And so tonight what I want to do is talk to you about four aspects of solitude. Now, when we say the word solitude in our culture, what typically comes to mind, it's not really that common of a word, but when we say it in our culture, we usually think about alone time, which translates to me time. Have you ever said, I just need some me time? No. Interesting. I thought more people than I had actually said, I need some me time. That's kind of what we think about. We think about about these times where we just need to get away from people, where we just need to get away from work, where we need to get away from pressure and veg out in front of the television or in a novel or pursuing a hobby or whatever it might be, just go somewhere where I can do what I want. I need some me time. And that's usually what's thought of in in our culture. It's interesting, I did just a little quick search on the internet with the word solitude and discovered, actually I knew this before I got on the internet because I've actually skied there, but there is a ski resort near Salt Lake City, Utah called Solitude. How many of you have ever been there? Okay, a few of you have been there. There is a fly tying company in California called Solitude Fly Company. Didn't know that. There are cabins in Estes Park called Solitude Cabins. And the idea around this word of solitude in our culture is that solitude is about you finding time for you. And you do what you want. You fly fish or you ski or whatever. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with some me time once in a while. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the discipline. Of solitude. It's something altogether different. And so to help us understand, I want to give us four P's tonight. And, and you will be maybe not very impressed, but I am because I never can come up with four points that all start with the same letter. But somehow, accidentally, I think I did that tonight. So the first one is purpose. The purpose of solitude. I want us to talk about the purpose of solitude. Now, its primary purpose is not me time. It's not time to do whatever I want. It's not even, its primary purpose is not even to rest, though that certainly can come in solitude. It's not even necessarily to fill our tank. The primary purpose of solitude in the context that we're talking about tonight is to know God. It's to know Him more deeply and more fully, and more intimately, it is to encounter and experience the living God that we've been singing about, that the ensemble sang about, to experience that God. The discipline of solitude is about pursuing God above all other things. When Jesus went to a solitary place, it wasn't just because he was sick of people, it was to be with the Father. There was a purpose behind him withdrawing from everything else and communing with the Father. And in being with the Father, Jesus found strength. He found clarity and power and encouragement. Jesus made the statement that he only did what he saw the Father doing. 
See, it was in his mission and his resolve and his strength, all of those things, they came out of his time alone with the Father. They came out of solitude, the intimacy he knew with the Father. Uh, Henry Nouwen, the late Henry Nouwen, or Henri, I'm not sure exactly how you say his, his first name, but he makes the statement in one of his books, he says, solitude is the place where you listen to the one who calls you beloved. Solitude is the place where you listen to the one who calls you beloved. The purpose of solitude is to be with him. It's to be with the one who calls you beloved. That's the purpose of solitude. As I was preparing this message and and working on it, especially this week, I had a really interesting memory that I had forgotten about that kind of came flooding into my mind. And it I had interesting emotions. I guess the memory is not so interesting, but the emotions I experienced kind of caught me a little off guard because I recalled years ago when I was a little boy, like in elementary age, maybe fourth grade is what I'm guessing. I, I can recall very vividly now, I had forgotten about it until preparing this message, times when I would go out into our backyard where we lived in Colorado Springs And we had a swing set out in the backyard, and I would sit on a swing, and wouldn't even really necessarily swing, but I would just sit on the swing by myself in in God's presence. And I just began to remember this so vividly. Sometimes I would actually sing songs of worship as about a 10-year-old, all by myself, out in the backyard, just being alone. I didn't know it was solitude. I didn't really know what it was about. There was just something inside of me that longed to be with God. And that memory just kind of came flooding back. And some of the emotions I experienced, I have to admit, were sadness because life was so simple then. You know when you're 10 years old, you don't, you don't have bills yet. You, don't, you know, you're not really much homework to do. You don't have a girlfriend yet because you haven't gone through puberty and they still have cooties. And so you don't have to worry about combing your hair or taking a shower or anything like that. It's just this simple time of life and a time when you, you actually believe that, that God really wants to be with you. And it just made me think about how over the years, now at 44, how complicated I've made my life in some respects. And I found myself, this sounds really goofy, but I found myself wanting to find a swing again. To just be alone with God. And I don't even know why I share that story with you, but um, it, it, I think that's what God longs for us. That may be part of why he talks about how we all have to become children to come to him. That we become like a child who just is fully dependent. Who has, I, I guess here's what it was. When I was 10 years old, or whatever that age was, and I went out in the backyard and I sat on a swing and I just was quiet in the presence of God or sometimes sing songs of worship to him, it's because I had nothing better to do. And I guess what I'm sensing inside of my heart now is do I really have anything better to do now? Probably not. Oh, in my mind, I tell myself I have a lot of work. I have a lot of stuff to do. But I'm not sure I really have anything better to do that would be better than sitting on a swing, being alone with God. So my mission this week is to find a swing because we don't have one in our backyard. So I'm going to find a swing.
If you see me in a park on a swing, don't bother me. I'm being alone with God. All right? Okay. The second one, the second aspect I want to talk about when it comes to solitude is the pain of solitude. The pain of solitude. This one is not quite as fun, but there certainly can be a pain associated with solitude. Last week we touched on it when we talked about silence. And we talked about the fact that when we turn the noise off in our lives, we come face to face with who we really are. And there are many of us who are not comfortable with silence for that reason, because we're not comfortable with who we really are in seeing ourselves for who we really are. Silence and solitude are so connected that this is true here too. Again, Henry Nouwen, the author I referred to earlier, calls solitude the furnace of transformation. That's a great term. The furnace of transformation. When we think of furnace, we think of heat. This fire. And scripture even uses that metaphor of fire as being a refining fire in our lives. And solitude becomes this furnace, this refining fire where all the junk or the dross, when we talk about metals, where all the junk in our lives comes to the surface so that something pure can emerge. Solitude can be that furnace of transformation. He also says this about solitude, and I love this picture. He says it's the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The great struggle is coming face to face with ourselves. Seeing who we are. Thomas Merton refers to this struggle as a struggle with social compulsions. Social compulsions. And what he means by that is the need for ongoing for ongoing and increasing affirmation in our lives. That's the struggle inside. When in solitude we come face to face with how driven we are by that need to be affirmed by people around us. That need to be approved of. That need to be accepted. That need to be liked. And we come face to face with the things that actually motivate us in what we do. That's what solitude does in our lives. It's where we begin to see those true motives because there's no pretending in solitude because there's no one there to deceive. In solitude, there's no one there to trick. Our image doesn't mean anything because there's no one there to see our image. It's only us and it's God and we know God sees right through our image. and He sees that person that's really inside of us and that begins to shape this struggle. He goes on to say that these compulsions are the basis of the two main enemies of the spiritual life. And he identifies those enemies as anger and greed. The two greatest enemies of the spiritual life, anger and greed. And those things begin to come to the surface when we go into the furnace of transformation, solitude. I'm just wrapping up reading a, a book that I picked up a while back that I've really enjoyed. It's a book, I've never heard of the authors before, but it's a book called The Revolutionary Communicator. And it's written by two guys. I probably won't pronounce their last names right. But it's a guy named Jed Metafind, I think, and Eric Loxmo. But it's a fantastic book on, on the characteristics of Jesus that made him such a great communicator. And one of those characteristics is the fact that he took time for solitude. And here's what these authors say in their chapter on solitude. They say the dizzying pace of our lives is itself a sort of anesthetic. I think that's a great statement. The dizzying pace 
at which we live our lives is itself a kind of anesthetic. Non-stop doses of activity, interaction, and stimulation serve to numb and blur our senses. We can hardly feel pain, let alone discern what habits and choices might be causing it. It's in solitude that the anesthetic wears off. And we see ourselves because there's nowhere to hide. And our soul is laid bare before a holy God. And that characterizes the struggle. It's a struggle with ourselves. It's a struggle with the gap between who we are and who we want to be. That comes to the surface in solitude. It's a struggle with who everyone else thinks we are and who we know we really are. It's a struggle in some ways with God and what God wants to work into our lives. But the great thing about solitude is that God doesn't leave us there. It's not merely the place of great struggle. It's also the place of a great encounter. So I was thinking about solitude. I thought uh, this week about most of the prison, old prison movies that I've seen on television. There's a place that, that... is the form of the worst punishment outside of capital punishment, obviously. When you mess up in prison, they take you to what? Solitary confinement. And that's like the worst. Have you ever seen those old movies where the prison warden comes in and says, take them to the hole? You know, the hole is solitary confinement. And it's not the best of of conditions, but what makes solitary confinement so difficult is the solitary part. They're already confined. It's the solitary part. In fact, there's a lot of studies that actually have been done on the psychological effects of solitary confinement to prisoners. It's an interesting study. I had no idea there was so much information that you could learn about it. There's a debate on whether it's humane or not and and all of that. And I'm not interested in going into that tonight. But, But this is different, obviously, for obvious reasons. Because, first of all, it's voluntary. It's not confinement. It's something we choose to enter into. When we talk about when we talk about solitude and it's not punitive, it's not a form of punishment. It's solitude with a purpose, which we already define. And that purpose is to know God more deeply. But while there's still a great struggle in our solitariness, our solitude, there's also great hope because God doesn't leave us there. We encounter God in a unique way through our solitude. See, as we struggle to die to self, we encounter the living God. And he begins to chart a new course in our lives. And see, in our instant gratification culture, we want all the gain with no pain, and we want it yesterday. We don't want to wait for it. We don't want to cultivate depth. We want to snap our fingers and be deep people. We don't want to take the time or the discipline to cultivate a relationship with God. We want the anointed preacher to lay hands on us and solve all that for us. We want the right evangelist to, 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 never mind, I'll get on a tangent. We, the point is this. We live in a culture where we want it all to happen like this. And there's no substitute, there's no shortcut for a daily discipline of cultivating a relationship with God. Part of that cultivation is our willingness to find places and times of solitude, to be with Him, to be alone with Him. Such an important part of this. See, Jesus taught us that to really live, you have to die. There's no life without death. There's no crown without a cross. There's no shortcut to true spiritual transformation 
in our lives. And in that great struggle, we experience the great encounter. And that encounter begins to change us bit by bit. And it molds us and it shapes us to be more like Jesus. Which is what this journey of discipleship is all about. Our peak love teaches here. We have five peaks. If you've gone to Summit, you're familiar with those. We have one of those peaks is love teaches. And it's about the discipleship piece of what we're about. And our goal, our mission with Love Teaches is to nurture the ongoing spiritual transformation of people's lives into the image of Jesus. Because that's what he's called us to in solitude is a part of that. Now, there are a lot of ways that we encounter God. There are many different ways that we encounter him. One of the ways that I encounter God in a unique way and a special way is through worship. And and maybe that goes all the way back to sitting on my swing, but there's something really powerful in my life personally when I can just worship God and express that through singing to Him. And you know, one of the joys for me is it really doesn't matter the style of music. One of the things I, I really enjoy is I often will do what we describe as the MC time in our weekend services, which is, you know, time when after worship a pastor comes up and prays and welcomes guests and, and goes through that that portion of the service, and I often will do that in the South Auditorium. And one of the reasons I love that is because I start Saturday night with the edge, and so I get to be a part of the edge worship where it's loud, and I don't hear the bass, I feel the bass, and I love it. And I get to worship with songs that I'm learning, some songs that I don't know that I'm learning. And then at 8.30, I get to worship with hymns. And in a band that's not driven by an electric guitar, but it's led from a baby grand piano. And I get to, to worship with all hail the power of Jesus' name and some of those great hymns that I grew up with that I probably sang on my swing when I was 10 years old. And then I go into an expression service, which is similar to what's happening in here, and then I go back into the edge. And it doesn't really matter what style it is. See, when the end of worship is God and not you, it doesn't really matter what the style is problem in the American church is we're such consumers that the end of worship has become us. It's the style we want and we prefer and we can't worship with hymns because they're just too old and outdated. Or we can't worship with the new chorus. That's a whole different sermon. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) One of the ways I encounter God is through worship. Another way I encounter God is in a very special and unique way is through serving. And especially serving the poor. And I won't take time to go too far into to my journey uh, a number of years ago. But I got to spend 10 days in Calcutta, India. And I experienced and encountered God in, in touching and loving the people of India who, who had absolutely nothing. I spent a week at a, a youth camp where it cost the equivalent of three American dollars to go to the camp for a whole week, and almost none of the kids had the money to do it. They all were scholarshiped. They had nothing. And I encountered God in a unique way in serving the poor. Another way that I encounter God in a special and unique way is through community. Through being with the body of Christ. And sharing authentic, transparent community that is centered on Jesus and who he is. See, solitude is not something we do instead of or at the expense of community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, Life Together. It's not on the screen. Well, maybe it is on the screen. He wrote this. He said, let him who cannot be alone 
beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. So solitude is not at the expense of community. So for those of you out there who just like being loners and like a lone ranger Christianity, this sermon is not an excuse for you to not have relationships. Both are necessary and required. But I will say to you that God reveals himself in a very special and unique way in times of solitude. All right, thirdly, and I need to hurry. Third is the practice of solitude. And I won't spend much time on this one. But the practice of solitude, it's not enough to read about it or listen to teaching about it. We must practice it. James said, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word as well. There are many ways to practice solitude. Let me just give you a few quickly and then we'll get to the final point here. One of the ways in my life that I'm learning to practice solitude is to look for moments of solitude in my normal day. And one of those moments that's become real to me as of late is when I first wake up in the morning. I don't know how you are, but when I wake up in the morning, and it's usually relatively early, unless I've had a really late night, I, I'm, I'm awake. I, I rarely am awakened by my alarm clock, and never do I hit the snooze button. Because once my eyes open, they're open. I'm awake. And I'm not one of those who wakes up and goes back to sleep and wakes up and goes back to sleep. I'm not proud of that. I wish I could often, but it's just the way I'm wired. Well, what that has done is it has afforded me some moments in the early morning when I wake up in the still, sometimes it's still dark outside, in the still of the early morning to just lay still in bed and be alone with God. It's a normal moment of my day, but before I jump out and head to the shower, it's a moment to be alone with God and to just listen. There's no noise because no one else in my house is awake. My 16-year-old, not quite up, oh, 17, sorry, Zach, just turned 17. It's just quiet. That's a moment. I love the morning time, and one of the moments for me, one of the reasons I love spring and summer is because in the morning it becomes warm enough where you can go outside early in the morning. And to me, a great moment of solitude and alone time with God is to have a cup of coffee in the early morning sitting outside. And all I can hear are the birds chirping, and I'm in his creation, and it's a moment of solitude. It's just a normal part of the day. All right? So th- those are opportunities that, that you can look for in your normal day. Then there are ways to set aside time. I think that's important as well. To set aside time and even a place where you're going to be alone with God. And if you can do it daily, not, not to beat yourself up and become legalistic about it, but there's something about that routine of cultivating relationship. It may be at home, it may be at work, it may be at a lunch break or on campus if you're a student or whatever. One of the places I love to go for solitude is up to Horsetooth Reservoir. I, I, and I love to get there at a time when there's not a lot of people there so I can find the free parking. Sorry to our parks department, but there's some areas where you can park for free and then Get on a rock that's near the water and listen to the water and just be alone with God. Maybe maybe that's a, a place for you. The prayer room here at the church is a wonderful place for solitude. Unless you all decide to use it, then you won't be alone if you're in there. But it's a wonderful, great environment to just be with God. Be alone with God. Find a place. Find time where you can do that. Maybe it's a walk 
for you when you're walking and being alone with God. I talked to someone last week who said one of the challenges for them is when they try to find a moment of silence, they, they fall asleep. And, and I, I've been there. And so one of the things that I used to do often in, in times with God is to walk instead of just sitting in one place. And as I walk, I can, it keeps me awake. I've never been walking and fallen asleep at the same time. So, all right. Um, and and now those times can include prayer, silence as we talked about, reading and meditating on scripture, journaling. It's a wonderful time to journal what God is speaking and breathing into your heart. Okay, right, let me get to the last one. The final one I want to talk to you about is the product. The product of solitude. In other words, what will solitude produce in our lives? And there are many things we could talk about. I'm just going to name a few and I'm going to do them quick. All right? By far, the very best thing that solitude produces in our lives is that deep, full relationship with God. By far, that's the very best thing. And the amazing thing about, about this, this knowing God in a deeper way is that it both satisfies us and creates a hunger for more. It's this interesting paradox. The more we seek God, the more he satisfies us. And the more he satisfies us, the more it compels us to seek him. There's a wonderful prayer. I won't take time to read it. But in the journal that we gave you, there's a wonderful prayer that's, that's written by A.W. Tozer on page 18. It actually sets up this section on solitude where, where he alludes to this incredible thing where we seek God, he satisfies us, and that compels us to thirst for him more. All right. Secondly, solitude will produce humility. Solitude produces humility. It can't help but produce humility because we're exposed in solitude. We become vulnerable in times of solitude, alone time with God. We realize that God doesn't love us because we deserve it. He loves us because he is love. Arrogance is crucified in the presence of God. You know, when you read through scripture about people who encounter God, and, and, and we, you know, we sing songs that say, I want to see you. And I, I like that, and that's good, but I'm not sure we really want to see God. Because everyone I read about in Scripture, when they saw God, they freaked out. No one actually saw his face. But when they encountered some sort of epiphany of an angel of the Lord or, or, or an encounter of God with God, they fell on their face in fear. There's, there's not arrogance in the presence of God. It can't stand in the presence of God. And so it brings about a humility when, when we discipline ourselves for solitude. The next thing is that it brings transformation. It brings change. And that change is at the core of who we are. Our core begins to conform to the image of Jesus. It's not just our outward manifestation of our life. It's not just our symptoms that change. The core of who we are, our heart begins to change. And that heart change then manifests itself in things like peace that surpasses understanding. It manifests in, in things like contentment in any circumstance, in things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, mercy, kindness, self-control, those kinds of things. It manifests in our lives. And ultimately, it manifests itself in this ongoing transformation of the image of Jesus. And finally, solitude brings a love and a compassion for people. A love and a compassion for people. See, God is a missional God. People are always at his heart. Redemption and reconciliation are always on his mind. He's always brought his love and his life and his blessing to people so that they would in turn bring his love and his life and his blessing to others. He's always operated that way. 
He doesn't take us deeper just for us. He does it for the world. You can't linger in God's presence and not begin to capture his heart for the world. Thomas Merton wrote this. He said, it is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not for what they say. That happens in solitude. We capture his heart for the world. Here's what I want us to do. Robin's going to come. I want to invite her to come. And she's going to sing a song. I want you to, to let God speak to you through the words of this song. And here's how we're going to end tonight. We've done this before. We're going to end it kind of open-ended. When Robin's finished, Terry, Pastor Terry and his team will be ready to lead us in, in a time of worship. And in the remaining minutes that we have, it's early. It's only 8.05. I want to invite you to do a couple of things. I want you to respond to God in the way that God would, would draw you to himself. You may want to sit where you are. You may want to stand. You may want to kneel. You may want to take this time to write some things in your journal. What is God talking to you about in your life? What's he talking to you about in so, uh, concerning solitude and the priorities of your life? Maybe some of you metaphorically need to find a swing and go back to a place of childlike faith where it's just you and God. And so you may want to journal some things. We're going to invite you to receive communion on your own as you feel compelled, as you want to. There's two tables up front and there's two in the middle. And there's bread and, and there's the cup. And you can receive communion on your own. You don't have to be a member to do that. We do ask that you have a relationship with God through Jesus. And, and if you do, boy, we invite you to receive communion. I'm going to invite our prayer team to, to come to the far sides. And if you want someone to pray with you, about what we've talked about tonight or about something completely unrelated, a need in your life. I want to invite you to come and let them take your hands and pray with you that God would touch you. And, and so we're going to, that's how we're going to end. Worshiping, praying, journaling, sharing the Lord's supper and, and just being with God for the next several minutes. And then when you're done, you can be dismissed. All right? So listen to the words that Robin's going to sing. You can actually begin moving if you want or begin writing, whatever, even as she's singing. And then Terry will come right into worship. You respond to God how you feel.